It was my intention last week to get through the whole chapter, but I got to preaching and uh, we weren't able to manage, but this time uh, we'll be able to get through it. So Acts chapter 17, and uh, we'll, we'll just start reading at verse 16 and go through the end of the chapter, just so we're refreshed and reminded on what's going on here. Sorry to break with all the uh, and not continuing with the Christmas theme, but we'll make up for it next week with our Christmas message. All right, Acts chapter 17, verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was being provoked within him as he was observing the city full of idols. So he was reasoning in the synagogue with Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be present. And also some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers were conversing with him. Some were saying, what would this idle babbler wish to say? And remember I mentioned last time, they literally said, what's this seed picker have to tell us? So in their mind, he's a guy who goes around uh, place to place, plucking up ideas on his own and mashing them together. Uh, What does this idle babbler wish to tell us? Others, he seems to be a proclaimer of strange deities because he was proclaiming Jesus and the resurrection. And in their mind, Jesus and the resurrection, uh, Anastasis, oh, these are two distinct gods from one another. Uh, Oh, we haven't heard of these yet. As far as I know, we don't have idols for them in our city quite yet. So they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, Mars Hill, saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are proclaiming? For you are bringing some strange things to our ears, so we want to know what these things mean. Now while the Athenians and the strangers visiting there used to spend their time in doing nothing other than telling or hearing something new. So Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is the Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things." And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, that they would seek God, if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and exist, even as some of your own poets have said, for we also are his children." Being then the children of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and thought of man. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent, because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed." having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some began to sneer, but others said, we shall hear you again concerning this. So Paul went out of their midst. But some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. 
Our Father, we are thankful that you have indeed revealed yourself to us in your word, that uh, we do not need to speculate, uh, we do not have to search far and wide, but uh, that which can be known about you is very near to us in this word. Uh, We thank you for this revelation, and I pray that in this time you would be glorified, that we would come to know you all the more, that uh, the God we worship would be the God that is uh, presented here in Scripture. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. One uh, author during the time of the Reformation had some interesting words regarding idolatry. He says, that we may gather that man's nature, so to speak, is a perpetual factory of idols. Man's mind, full as it is of pride and boldness, dares to imagine a god according to its own capacity, as it sluggishly plods, indeed, is overwhelmed with the crassest ignorance, it conceives an unreality and an empty appearance as God." Mankind, uh, by nature, by our sinful nature, by the fact that we are sons and daughters of Adam, reject, rejects the God of the universe as he has revealed himself. Mankind is religious. We are all religious by nature. We were all created to worship, and yet in our rebellion, our rejection of God, we seek to worship things that are anything but God. We create uh, literal images of God in the form of idols, statues. That's typically what we think about when we think of idolatry. But we can also be guilty of coming up with an image of God in our own mind and then treating that image of God as if he is the God of Scripture. We see this sin is very prominent among the people of Athens that the Apostle Paul encounters here. The city is full of idols, and Paul was vexed by the idolatry that he saw when he was here. Remember what I said last time about how one ancient author said that you're more likely to find a god than a man in the city of Athens. So full was that city of idols. And this is the context in which the Apostle Paul finds himself proclaiming the truth of the one true God of the universe and what he has done through the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul comes proclaiming the God of the universe, the God that the Athenians, by their own admission, do not know. Uh, The Apostle Paul, as we saw uh, right at the end of last week's message, the beginning of his word to them, while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. And this is where we began. And Paul begins at the very beginning with the God who made all things. The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is the Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. So the very first thing that Paul does is he presents who God is. Who is God? Well, he is the creator. He is the one who made the heavens and the earth and the one who made all things. Paul, in his message to the Athenians, goes back to Genesis 1. Something that's interesting about uh, Paul's sermon, something that's Uh, puts it apart from other sermons that we find is that we don't have a direct quotation from the Old Testament here. 
Remember what Paul's pattern was, was to go, uh, whenever he arrived at a city, was to go to the synagogue and then preach Christ from the scriptures. And here we have Paul going and he's preaching to the Athenians. And some say that, oh, because the Athenians uh, reject the testimony of scriptures, that Paul himself sets the scriptures aside and begins to argue from human reason, from general revelation. Well, that's not the case because what the Apostle Paul does, even if he's not quoting scripture, is he is assuming it throughout Paul doesn't quote the Old Testament directly, but what he says is rooted in the Old Testament scriptures, and a lot of it is particularly rooted in the book of Genesis. Paul goes back to the, the beginning, and uh, he assumes the truths of the parts of the Old Testament that would have been the most offensive to his listeners in that day. Paul goes back to Genesis 1, uh, and what does Genesis 1-1 say? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And what's the Apostle Paul say? That God, the God that I'm proclaiming to you, the God that you are ignorant of, is the God who made the world and all things in it. He is the one who is Lord of heaven and the earth. The Apostle Paul doesn't compromise on this foundational fact of Scripture, that God is the creator. He's the creator of all things. He starts at the beginning. Uh, and he starts in a place that the unbelieving world often ridicules. When we bring up the topic of God, when we discuss the existence of God with unbelievers, uh, usually the very first place that many who would ridicule the Bible go to is Genesis 1, right? Because in our modern world, there are things that we think we know. We think we have an understanding of how the world works, don't we? Uh, and this understanding has been developing over the years, over the centuries. And, uh, and this understanding that the modern world has come up with is completely contrary to what we find in Scripture. What is the modern understanding of the world? Well, the world started, or the universe itself came into existence from a great big explosion called the Big Bang, uh, right? And that's uh, the explanation. I heard something fascinating uh, the other day, a new theory, and this just shows these theories continue to build on one another. I saw the headline of an article where someone comes along and speculates that the Big Bang wasn't just the beginning of our universe, but it was actually the end of another universe. And the universe has been uh, continually exploding and recreating itself. And uh, what is this based on? Well, nothing really. Uh, but modern science does come along and say that the scriptures, uh, well, that's just primitive man's explanation for the things that couldn't be explained, but we in our enlightened state have come along and we have figured things out. Well, the Apostle Paul, he is in a very intellectual world. Remember who he's dealing with. He's dealing with the philosophers of his day, the Epicureans and the Stoics. This is above the general hoi polloi of those people actually bowing down and worshiping statues. That was most of the Greek world, right? Uh, they weren't the traditional Greek religion as we understand it. Rather, they believed in a, a more sophisticated version of religion. So these were the wise men of the day. These are the men who understood how the world worked. But what does the Apostle Paul does when he engages in conversation with them? Well, he goes back to the beginning. He assumes the truth of the scriptures, and he presents the God of Genesis chapter 
1. Uh, Paul doesn't compromise on the scriptures when he is engaging in the unbelieving world. Instead, he assumes the truth and the reality of it. We in our day can be tempted to compromise in certain areas when we come across similar high-minded philosophical speculations, right? Uh, Here's some things that I've heard uh, that Christians, here's some arguments that even Christians have used in order to try to blend together what the Bible teaches and then what the world itself is telling us. Have you ever heard uh, a statement similar to this? Well, maybe God did use evolution, and maybe God did use a big bang, and maybe God did use millions and millions of years to bring us about, right? We've probably heard arguments like this. Well, what we're doing really is compromising on the plain truth of Scripture when we do that. And uh, we don't need to be afraid to believe what the Scriptures say, I guess is what my point is. The Apostle Paul wasn't afraid to go to the book of Genesis. The Apostle Paul wasn't afraid to proclaim the truth that God is indeed the Creator, and neither should we. The Apostle Paul, as he is presenting God, he is not simply presenting the God of man-made speculations. He is not presenting the God that the philosopher comes up with when he sits in a cave deep in thought trying to understand the world around him. The God that the Apostle Paul is presenting is a God who has revealed himself. He has indeed revealed himself in creation in the world around us. That's what Romans 1 tells us, that the world around us testifies to the fact that God indeed does exist, that he indeed is all-powerful, all-holy, and things like that. But God has also revealed himself in Scripture, and it is Scripture that is the source of the Apostle Paul's authority, even as he is presenting God to those who would not hold to Scripture in as, in as high regard as he does. And that's where under our understanding of God has to come from as well. When we think about God, we're thinking we need to remember that God has indeed revealed himself. God has told us what we are to think of him. God has uh, shown us who he is, what his attributes are. We are not free to simply speculate and come up with our own ideas of God, lest we fall into the danger of creating an idol. So, our understanding of God must be derived from the scriptures We can't distort how God has revealed himself to scriptures, as the temptation often is. Uh, We can't uh, soften some of the harder edges of scripture for the sake of getting the message through. Rather, we trust that the God of scripture is as powerful as he says he is, and that we can present him as he has presented himself. God was not embarrassed to say, to tell us, that at the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God was not embarrassed to tell us that in six days he created everything that there is. God is not embarrassed to tell us that the whole world was once flooded. God was not embarrassed to tell us that people at one point in time lived over 900 years old. If God wasn't embarrassed to tell us that, then we shouldn't be embarrassed when we proclaim that this is the God of the universe. So Paul presents God as he is. He is the God who created the heavens and the earth. He is the Lord over all. And something else that the Apostle Paul does is while he presents who God is, he also tells us who God is not or what God is not. He has to counter the false ideas of God that have arisen in that day. 
And what does he say? God is the God who created the heavens and the earth, the world and all things in it. And he is the Lord of the heavens and the earth. And what he is not is a God that dwells or is confined to temples. God is not a God of this creation. He does not need to dwell in this creation. He is not part of this creation. Rather, he is the creator of this creation. And this is completely contrary to uh, the ideas of that day. What were the gods in the days of the Apostle Paul? Well, the gods were simply representatives of the creation around him, of them, of the creation around them. Why is it that the gods often represent created aspects of the universe, right? God is the, uh, Zeus is the god of thunder and lightning, right? That's the explanation for thunder and lightning. Oh, there's a god that is Zeus, uh, Poseidon, the god of the sea, the god of the ocean. These gods are merely reflections of creation around them. But the god that Paul is presenting is not a reflection of creation. Rather, he is the creator. God is not confined to temples. He does not dwell in his creation. And even though the Jews did have a temple, they even recognized that God did not physically live there. When the temple, uh, Solomon's temple was constructed, one of the things that was said uh, regarding the temple and regarding God is found in 1 Kings chapter 8, and I'll just read it. Uh, Solomon says this, But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less than this house which I have built? This is also the argument that Stephen made that got him into so much trouble earlier on in the book of Acts. Remember, one of the points that Stephen made was that the Most High does not dwell in houses made by human hands. As the prophet said, heaven is my throne and earth is the footstool of my feet. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what place is there for my repose? Was it not my hand which made all these things? So in Paul's arguments, he's undercutting a lot of the assumptions that the religions of the world would have, and he is assuming the truth of Scripture. Notice that when Paul presents God, he does not make a clever philosophical argument for the existence of God. Usually, when we discuss God with those who do not claim to believe in God, uh, we often believe them when they say that. And then we go about trying to prove the existence of God. Uh, the Apostle Paul doesn't do that. A lot of our theological discussions are wasted in trying to demonstrate something that we all know, that there is a God and that we are accountable to him. The Apostle Paul in Romans 1, and we all know the, this passage very well, says this, Since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. And even the previous verse, he says, That which is known about God is evident within mankind, for God made it evident to them. No one is born an atheist, right? Atheism is something that you learn. Atheism is something that you have to develop. Atheism uh, really is the rejection of something that you already know. It is the suppression of something that God has already put there. One uh, author that I read puts, uh, puts this in an interesting way. He says this, I don't argue with atheists. I simply say, you know very well that God exists. 
Your problem isn't that you don't know that God exists. Your problem is that you can't stand him. And that's the truth of mankind, is it not? The fact that God is the creator of all things was not only a crucial reality that Paul had to present in his day, but it's something that we need to be ready to proclaim in our day as well. Remember, what is the modern dogma of the world? What's the thing that we all must believe? Uh, What's the thing that is assumed in every single classroom in the United States, in every single university and uh, lecture hall in the United States? What is assumed? Well, it is assumed that we are the byproduct of random chance, and we just so happen to get here. There is no purpose, uh, no true divine purpose outside of what we can come up with ourselves. Uh, We are simply the random results of uh, randomness. That's the modern dogma. That's what everyone operates on in this world, is it not? And yet, that is completely contrary to what we find in Scripture. The idea that we are simply the byproduct of random chance over the course of millions and millions of years does not flow from the observation of the created universe. When Darwin came up with the idea of evolution, it wasn't because he said, oh, I'm going to take all the facts that I know and I'll interpret them uh, based on their face and simply come up with this idea. No, the whole idea of evolution was, well, because we do not believe in God, because we're rejecting the idea of God, we need to come up with an explanation for how we got here apart from God. Atheism, unbelief, the rejection of God does not come from observing the creation around us. Rather, it comes from the rebellious nature that is in all of our hearts. So Paul is dealing with this, and Paul doesn't play their games. He presents the God who is there, the God who created the heavens and the earth, the God who is not confined to the, to the earth, the God who is Lord over all. And there's some implications for us in this that the Apostle Paul says. Nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. So, the first point that Paul makes is that God is the creator of all things. A second point that the Apostle Paul makes is that he is the sustainer of all things. Not only are we all created by God, But God is active in his universe in upholding all creation around us. Uh, The author of Hebrews says this about the Lord Jesus. He is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature, and he upholds all things by the word of his power. So let's think about this. When God did not just simply create the universe and then step back, What the Apostle Paul and what all Scripture tells us is that God is active in his universe, upholding all things. In Colossians, it says, For by him, the Lord Jesus, all things were created, both in the heavens and in the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers of authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Isn't that amazing? The fact that 
We are here today because God has seen fit to bring us here today, that we are being held together today because God sees fit to hold us together today. This is not only true in some abstract way, this is true for each and every one of us. Everything that we have, everything that we need is provided to us ultimately by God. God takes an active role and interest in every single life that is out there, every single life that exists and he does so not just in uh, the abstract way of holding our molecules together, but he also provides for us everything that we need. That's what the Apostle Paul says. He gives to all people life and breath and all things. A couple weeks ago, when we were talking about thanksgiving, one of the reasons that we give thanks is because we acknowledge that God does indeed give us everything. Everything we have comes directly from the hand of God, is, is a direct gift from God to us. Even the very food that we eat. When Jesus takes bread and fish, breaks it, distributes it, what does he do? Before that, he gives thanks to God. Because what's he doing? He's recognizing that even this bread that this young boy gave us is a gift directly from God. And Jesus says this, look at the birds of the air. They do not sow, nor do they reap, nor do they gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. How, are you not worth much more than they? Do not worry then, saying, what will we eat, or what will we drink, or what will we wear? The Gentiles eagerly seek all these things, for your heavenly Father knows that you need these things. In our society, and the way in our uh, culture, we've become so self-centered and self-reliant that we forget the fact that everything that we have is ultimately a gift from God. Uh, we often don't pray for food because we've already came to the conclusion that, oh, I'll be able to take care of myself, right? Uh, that's often how it goes. Uh, when there are things that seem to be out of our control, that's when we go to God because, oh, I can't do that myself. But there are things, at least in our minds, that we categorize as these are the things that I take care of and these are the things that God takes care of. The things that I take care of, well, I take care of uh, getting myself up in the morning, getting myself dressed. I take care of going and doing my job and I take care of going and getting the groceries and cooking the food. These are things that I take care of. I need God to take care of things that are out of my control. Uh, sicknesses, diseases, all the horrible things that are going on in the world. That's how we think. We separate uh, sacred from secular, as we call it. But what is the testimony of Scripture? Actually, no. Those things that you think you take care of, God is the one who gives those to you. Uh, that food that you went out and got and uh, you paid for and you cooked and you ate, guess what? God has taken complete credit for all of that because it ultimately does come from him. He gives to all people life and breath and all things. Do you have something, a possession? Do you enjoy it? Well, guess who gave it to you? God gave it to you. Everything finds its ultimate source in God because he is the creator and the sustainer of all things. And because God is the creator and the sustainer of all things, uh, here's a reality, here's a, a, a news flash, and it might be a little bit shocking. God does not need you for anything, right? God does not need you for anything, if God is the creator of all things, if God is the sustainer of all things, what can you offer to God? God is infinitely powerful. He does not need to be sustained by anything. 
Have you ever seen, uh, uh, I don't know, heard stories of, uh, they're monster stories typically, but uh, stories where there's a, a remote village and there's some evil deity that comes along and uh, you need to offer that deity a sacrifice in order for him to be appeased. And if you don't offer him that sacrifice, and he's going to come and he's going to eat the whole village or whatever else it is, you know. Uh, we've, we've heard stories that are related to that. Well, the idea is, well, uh, we need to appease God. We need to give him stuff to sustain things because unless we're sustaining God, he won't be able to sustain us. Well, that's not the truth that is presented in Scripture. God does not need to be sustained by anything. Psalm 50, verses 12 through 13, God says this, If I were hungry, would I not tell uh, If I were hungry, I would not tell you. For the world is mine and all it contains. Shall I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of male goats? One of the aspects of man-made religions is that God needs us in order to accomplish his own purposes, right? Man-made religions are centered on the actions and abilities of mankind to the point where even God is limited in what he can do by his own creation. And this idea can even creep up in Christianity. The whole idea behind works-based righteousness right? Works righteousness system where you have to do something, offer your works in order for God to save you. The idea behind that is that God, for one reason or another, is unable to save anyone unless they cooperate through their actions, whether it be participating in the sacraments, uh, being baptized, receiving the Lord's Supper, whatever else it might be, going door to door, doing good works. God can't save you unless you come along and help him out in doing those things. Another place that we see this is in the health and wealth prosperity gospel movement, right? Uh, One of the major snares of that movement is the teaching that if you simply exercise enough faith, then you will be able to receive whatever it is that you're praying for. It's called the word of faith movement because uh, it is through you exercising your faith that you receive whatever it is that you're praying for, right? And what's often prayed for? Uh, Again, health, wealth, new cars, etc., etc. And guess what? In their theology, God has already done all of those things. He is just simply waiting for you to exercise that faith because unless you do it, And unless you exercise your faith strong enough, God isn't able to help you. That's the idea behind that. And the idea is that God would love to give you all the health and wealth that you can imagine, but he is not able to because your faith simply isn't strong enough. They're one of the stories that is often told. And if you watch enough of the the word faith stuff on TV, you might have heard this illustration. The illustration of someone dying and going to heaven and then he... uh, Uh, God shows him a warehouse of all of these many things that he could have had on earth, right? It's filled with cars and uh, boats and houses and mansions and new limbs and new organs, all of these things. And he says, oh, God, why didn't you give me these things while I was alive? And God says, oh, well, you didn't pray for these things. I wasn't able to unless you exercise your faith. It's a silly idea because... uh, What does it do? It centers me, it centers my abilities and my strengths and completely limits God based on those things. That is not the God that is presented in the scriptures. 
He is not served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. God does not need us. In fact, we are the ones who need God. Continuing on in verse 26, And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, that they would seek God if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and exist, and even as some of your own poets have said, for we are his offspring. So he says, uh, one, God is the creator of all things. Two, God is the sustainer of all things. And here he's presenting the idea that God is the ruler of all things. God is the ruler over the nations. Like I said before, God did not simply create the world and step back, but he has an active role in the, all of the affairs of his creation. What does it say? From one man, God has brought forth every nation from the earth. This is another idea that would have been contrary in that day. The Greeks viewed themselves as a, a high, they viewed themselves in a higher status. They viewed themselves as a higher form of humanity. This is even further from the extent that the Jews did it. Remember, the Jews, uh, they viewed the world in this way. There were Jews, and there were Gentiles. Jews are God's chosen people. Gentiles are not. That's the Jewish worldview, right? But they at least recognize that, and yeah, we all came from Adam. That's not how it worked in the, Gent- in the uh, uh, Greek world. In the Greek world, the Greeks view themselves as, we're the Greeks, the rest of the world are the barbarians. And want to know why they were called barbarians? Because when they talked, it sounded like Bar, 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 bar. That's, that's how they viewed them talking, right? Uh, they viewed them as just a lower form of humanity. We are the Greeks. We are the ones who have the relationships with the gods. And these barbarians, uh, they are a lesser humanity than we are. <clears throat> but what does the Apostle Paul say? From one man, every nation of mankind has been produced. And this is an idea that's contrary in our day as well, is it not? Uh, evolution, what Darwin introduced to the world, is the idea, uh, if evolution is true, then by necessity, all of mankind is not equal. If evolution is true, right, then by necessity, there are some men who are better than others. There are some who are more advanced than others. There are some who have progressed further along the line of evolution than others. And because of that, again, some men are greater than others. Some men are more advanced. Some men are more highly evolved. Some people are, close, are more closely related to monkeys and fish than other people, according to that idea. And in the 20th century, we saw the fruit of that idea, did we not? In places such as Nazi Germany, where one group of mankind drew a circle around themselves and said, because we are the superior life forms, in order for us to uh, perpetuate ourselves throughout the world, the inferior ones need to go away. Well, when we read the scriptures, we see that the reality is completely contrary to that. Because we all come from one man, we all, uh, because we all share a common ancestor, we are all part of a common family. We are all on equal footing 
in our humanity. There is no human that is more or less human than another. We are all created in the image of God, and we are all the offspring of Adam. We're all part of one family. And we read that God has also determined the boundaries of all the nations of the earth. Now, we recognize that we share a humanity, but there's also the reality of different ethnicities, different nations. Again, not that one is better than another. Uh, This is not an accident. This is not a bad thing. We see that God is the one who planned this out and is glorified in the diversity that we see among mankind, right? What's going to, in the book of Revelation, what is the picture? Men of every tribe, tongue, people, and nation coming together and worshiping the Lord, right? Uh, Men of different tribes, tongues, peoples, and nations all being of one humanity coming together. But God is the one who determines even these things as well. God determines the times and the boundaries of all the nations of the earth. God has his hand in when nations rise, when nations fall. God has his hand in who is going to be part of one nation and who is going to be part of another nation. And we, very see, uh, we see God's intention in this very clearly even in the book of Genesis. What is one of the very first things that God does after the flood? Well, he confuses the language of mankind so that they would spread across the earth and become the different nations that they are today. uh, We read in Genesis that the Lord scattered them abroad from over and over the face of the earth. Now, uh, so not only uh, does God determine the peoples and the boundaries, but he also determines the histories of nations as well. When we look at history, it is not just God simply stepping back and uh, allowing things to work out just the way that they are. Rather, he has a very active role in human affairs. The Roman Empire rose and fell according to God's purpose and plan. The United States rose and is falling, not by accident, but according to God's purpose and plans. God has a very active role in human affairs. And even though we see nations rising up against God, even in rebellion against him, even this is in the providence of God and according to his purposes. One of the clearest examples that we find of this is uh, in the book of Isaiah. There's an amazing section in Isaiah chapter 10. Isaiah chapter 10, God is speaking to Assyria at this point. Assyria was a nation that rose up against the people of Israel. They were an enemy of Israel. They were an enemy of God. But what does God say? Isaiah chapter 10, starting in verse 5. Woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger, and the staff in whose hands is my indignation. I send it against a godless nation and commission it against the people of my fury to capture booty, to seize plunder, and to trample them down like mud in the streets. And yet it does, not, it does not so intend, nor does it plan in its heart, but rather it is its purpose to destroy and cut off many nations. And then going on, the Lord says, uh, uh, For he has said, By the power of my hand and my wisdom I did this, for I have understanding, and I removed the boundaries of the people. Notice that language, boundaries of the people. That's what Paul is talking about and plundered their treasures. And I, like a mighty man, brought down their inhabitants. And my hand reached to the riches of the people like a nest. 
And then verse 15, what does he say of Assyria? And remember, what's Assyria doing? In their hatred for Israel, in their lust for power, they're uh, trampling Israel. But what is God saying? I am the one who brought this about. But then what's he say to Assyria? Is the axe to boast itself over the one who chops with it? Is the saw to exalt itself over the one who wields it? That would be like a club wielding the one who lifts it, or like a rod lifting him who is not wood. Therefore, the Lord, the God of hosts, will send a wasting disease among his stout warriors, and under his glory a fire will be kindled like a burning flame. So, just to put it all in perspective, what happens? Assyria rises up against Israel. They, bring, they carry out God's judgment against Israel. God says, I am the one who does this. But the Assyrians, guess what? I'm going to punish you as well, because what are you doing? Boasting that it is in my power that I did this. It is like a club saying to the wielder, I am the one who is powerful. God has complete control over history. He has complete control over all these things. Lamentations puts it in a pretty succinct way. Lamentations chapter 3, verses 37 through 40. Who is there who speaks and it comes to pass unless the Lord has commanded it? It is not from the mouth of is it not from the mouth of the most high that both good and ill go forth? Why should any living mortal or any man offer complaint in view of his sins? Let us examine and probe our ways and let us return to the Lord. And why does the Lord do this? What does the apostle Paul say? He, uh, he says that he appoints, uh, determined their appointed times and boundaries of their habitation for the purpose that they would seek God. And that's exactly what we see in Lamentations, is it not? God does as he pleases, and what is the response of the people? Let us examine and probe our ways and let us return to the Lord. It is in him we live and move and have our being. Every single life is created and sustained by God. <clears throat> just because we're running out of time, very quickly, verses 30 through 31, Paul, uh, I don't think Paul is concluding here, but he is brought to a conclusion by the response that he receives. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent, because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all by raising him from the dead." So what does the Apostle Paul say? He presents the God of Scripture. He presents the God of history. The God does not need, the God who is not sustained by human hands. The God who does not dwell in temples. And what does he say? This is what God is now telling you. He is declaring that all men everywhere repent because there is a day of judgment. God has been patient to this point, but God's patience comes to an end. Up till this point, God has allowed the Athenians to live long and prosper in their idolatry and sin and rebellion against God and every step of the way, enjoying the common grace that God gives to all people. But this time of ignorance that God has allowed is now over. The unknown God of the Athenians has made himself known, and he has made himself known through the Lord Jesus Christ. And now the response is to turn to God, to repent. God is declaring to all men everywhere that they should repent. Because guess what? There is a day of judgment that is coming. Mankind knows that God exists, and in every waking hour, mankind acts against the God who created them.
And guess what? God says time is up. There is a day of judgment. And now it is on you to repent. And what is the proof that judgment is coming? He has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. How do we know that God is going to judge the world? Well, because Jesus has risen from the dead. God has designated a judge, Jesus Christ the righteous, who came, who died, and who rose again from the dead, and who is going to return. He's going to return in judgment and in righteousness and carry out uh, against all men uh, according to the wrath of God according to all their deeds. So the God has, of Scripture has revealed himself, the God who created all things, the God who sustains all things, the God who orders all things, the God who is now calling all men to turn to him in repentance. So what is the response to this message given by the Apostle Paul? Well, when they heard that word, the resurrection of the dead, some began to sneer. Why do they sneer? Well, because the resurrection uh, would have been nonsense in those days. Uh, the idea of that which was dead coming back to life was uh, absurd. There are others who wanted to hear Paul again, and there are some who join him and believe. So we see the response. We see the mixed response. Uh, the question is, how are we going to respond to this God who has revealed himself in his word? So in conclusion, when we think about God, are our thoughts based on what God has revealed in scripture, or are they simply the imaginings that make us feel comfortable. It's in our nature to reveal, to rebel against God and to create gods in our own image. When we worship God, are we worshiping the God that is reflected in Scripture? When we think of God, are we thinking of a God that uh, is revealed in Scripture? Or are we simply thinking about a God that we ourselves make up in our mind? Are we blown to and fro by the teachings of philosophies and uh, the ideas that the world offers? Or are we grounded in the revelation of God? Every single time a supposedly new scientific discovery comes out that completely undermines the Christian faith, do we go right along with it, or are we rooted in what Scripture tells us? Because guess what? Uh, science changes all the time, does it not? There's always a new theory on where we came from. There's always a new theory uh, on uh, how the world works. Yet God has already revealed that. Are we going to be blown around by the world believing in something that's inevitably going to be rejected in just a couple of years? Or are we going to stick to what the word of God says? And then finally, are we heeding the warning to repent and turn to God? God is not blind to our sin. He is not blind to our rebellion. And there's going to be a day of reckoning. And that day has been made certain by the fact that Jesus has risen from the dead. Well, we will not be judged by a God of our own imaginings. What do we often do? We create a God who is okay with our sins. That's not the God who is going to judge us. The God of Scripture is going to judge us. If we are alive today and we have not yet turned to the Lord in repentance, God right now, in his kindness, is offering that opportunity to you. The Apostle Paul says, Do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? So let's not respond with scoffs or doubts or ideas that God will not judge. The day is fixed, 
Instead, let us take the opportunity that's been given to us and go before the judge of all the world before he takes his seat in judgment against you. Christ is coming back to judge. There's going to be a second coming, but we remember there was the first coming where Christ came as the Lamb of God to take away the sins of the world. And because of that, we can turn to Christ, receive the forgiveness of our sins, and enter into the presence of God forever. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we are thankful for this time that we've had to learn of who you are, to read of you and your word. And I pray that if there is anyone out here, anyone in this room, who does not yet know you through scriptures, that they would come to know you soon, that they would come to know you even to this day, that they would turn to you as the Apostle Paul appeals to his listeners in repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Our Father, we are thankful that you are not far off, that we do not need to seek far and wide to find you, but you are even now in our midst. I pray that we would be blessed in our day and following week, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.